Clinker Factor, the cement industry podcast. Welcome to the Clinker Factor, a podcast from WCA, which looks at the cement industry's response to climate change around the world and some other topics of interest. I'm Ian Riley, CEO of WCA and your host on the Clinker Factor. Of course, with cement contributing 8% of greenhouse gases, we tend to concentrate on what the industry can do to reduce emissions. But today we're looking at a a different opportunity, an opportunity for cement and concrete industry to make a positive contribution to climate action. So today I'm talking to the two steering committee co-chairs of the Smart Surfaces Coalition. Uh, Greg Katz is the CEO of the Smart Surfaces Coalition. He's the author of Greening Our Built World, formerly MD at Good Energies. Uh, He also chaired the Carbon Star Committee, which was a US-Canadian committee of leading academics, government and industry representatives that developed the first international standard for measuring and specifying the carbon footprint of concrete. Uh, Greg was also director of financing for energy efficiency and renewable energy in the Clinton administration. Uh, my second guest is Professor Vivian Lofness, the Paul Mellon Chair of Architecture and the former head of the School of Architecture at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, she's also on the Natural Academy of Science Committee, writing policy to decarbonize the US uh, by 2050. So Vivian, Greg, uh, welcome to the podcast. And Vivian, maybe I could kick off with you by asking you to talk a little about the key challenges for for architects today. Thank you, Anne. Um, I'm delighted to be here. There are a number of things that the architectural and urban design community are plagued with that they're trying to solve, in which the the cement and and concrete industry are a critical part. Uh, One is the issue of designing for resiliency. Uh, We know that cities are being flooded, uh, that um, heat waves are are increasing the temperatures to non-survivable levels in many cities in the the peak season. Uh, We've got hurricane challenges. And so they're looking for solutions that will reduce the heat island effect, reduce the urban flooding, and provide the level of security in the face of hurricanes and earthquakes and other natural disasters. So that's certainly one area where concrete plays a critical role. Um, And one of the advantages that the Smart Surface Coalition has been pursuing is the use of highly reflective uh, concrete as a way of reducing urban heat island, the use of more porous concrete as a way of addressing flooding, and uh, and then beginning to introduce green uh, as an integral component. So landscape materials, bioswales, tree canopy as, as a partnership with concrete for resiliency. Okay, thanks, Vivian. Uh, so, Greg, would, would you like to comment on, on some specific examples, uh, the general contribution that smart surfaces can, can make? But I think you have some very concrete examples of this. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. Cities, on average, are very dark and impervious because of the surfaces that we've put on them. And the work that Vivian and I or others are engaged in is to um, enable cities to reverse that blunder, that design blunder. Cities, on average, absorb about 83% of incoming sunlight and heat and convert that into heat. As you say, it's an urban heat island effect. So cities are commonly 8 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit hotter in the summer than rural areas and low-income areas, another 5 to 10 degrees beyond that. So we've adopted surfaces that are lowest first cost and impose enormous 
social, health, environmental, infrastructure, and energy costs. And that design failure is a signally large one. It impacts all communities and is accelerating climate change because it contributes to climate change. So the purpose of the coalition is to build the tools, the guidance, the analytics, and the support of the leading organizations around health and architecture planning and so forth to enable and accelerate this transition to what we call smart surfaces, meaning reflective forest green surfaces that can protect our cities, keep them more livable, make them less expensive to live in healthier places to live and work. So uh, as Greg said, uh, Vivian, the, there's a habit, if you like, of building things in a particular way, of, of using particular surfaces in this case. And it perhaps was driven by economics or possibly just material availability in the first place. But once that habit becomes ingrained, then you know there's a tendency for, for it to be continued because the designers are familiar with it and, and the whole system is geared up. I guess that when we think about doing things differently, it has to start with design. And that must be something that architects are, are considering now. Is, is there a, a particular approach that can help to make the sort of changes uh, in this and other areas to, to use materials and to use methodologies that are more suitable for a green approach, a sustainable approach? Yeah, I think um, there's sort of two major uh, directions that, that are being pursued. One is substituting other materials for impervious pavement wherever possible. And you know, when we look at where we, where we put impervious surfaces, it's, it's streets and sidewalks, it's parking lots, it's roofs. And um, the, the palette or the sort of menu of solutions that we are beginning to explore would allow us to reduce the overall amount of impervious, including reversing what we've been doing, which is uh, many cities can have as much as 85% impervious surface. And, you know, with little pockets of green here and there, but by and large impervious. It's a little bit like sealing, you know, your, the skin of your body and assuming that the body will survive. It won't. I mean, if we plastic wrap ourselves, we won't survive. So we need to think about ways in which to let the, let the earth breathe. So certainly there is this question of what are the alternative choices and, and uh, lighter materials and more porous materials, wherever we are, we are using pavement, are one way to let the earth breathe. Replacing, you know, roofs that are uh, impervious and dark with green roofs and with with uh, photovoltaic roofs are strategies that can can help the earth um, as well. So there is a palette of solutions there. The second avenue that many uh, professionals are looking at is how to lower the embodied carbon in the impervious materials that we're we're selecting. So they're looking for alternatives not necessarily to, to cement, but alternatives in the way in which cement is produced and concrete is, is, uh, is poured to ensure that the embodied carbon is dropped by 50% or more so that we're dealing with less embodied carbon. So, so maybe at that point, we could ask, ask you, Greg, to explain a little bit about Carbon Star because it's trying to address this, this point, isn't it? Carbon Star is a, as you said, international standard that allows you to rigorously quantify the CO2 in a cubic meter or cubic yard of carbon. So it's measured in pounds per cubic meter or cubic yard. Uh, it then in turn allows architects to specify. So an example is the San Francisco airport going through an $8 billion upgrade. They are using Carbon Star to specify good, better, and best levels of CO2, good as 200 pounds per cubic yard, which is about 60% below industry standard, zero, which is carbon neutral, and then negative 200 pounds, meaning 
their best that they are looking for for suppliers of concrete, which net sequester 200 pounds of CO2 per cubic yard of concrete. So it opens up this avenue to Vivian's point of decarbonizing buildings. You can, you can build a building with negative carbon concrete and actually start with uh, negative carbon. There are a couple dozen companies, Blue Planet and Carbon Cure and others that are, have, are starting to offer this product to the market. Uh, the volume of that is scaling up and we felt it was essential to provide a transparent industry, government, and academic supported standard that everyone could reference so that you have an apples to apples comparison on performance and that you provide to specifying groups like cities or corporate entities or architects the ability to precisely specify targets of concrete. So you can take that 8% number that you described and ultimately use concrete and buildings and roads as a way to sequester carbon as we as we race to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Yeah, and do you see adoption of this? Uh, you mentioned San Francisco Airport. I think I remember hearing that uh, Canada had adopted it as a, as a standard, right, as a national standard. The, the technical Carbon Star standard was only issued late last year, sorry, second half of last year. Uh, and a number of Canadian federal agencies are now adopting it. Uh, so the adoption rate in Canada is particularly rapid. Yeah. Now, I think this question of standards keeps coming up over and over again, uh, whether it's standards for measuring the carbon footprint of concrete or uh, certifying carbon credits or, or, or indeed certifying the people who audit these carbon credits. You know, it, it, there's a whole area of, of standards. And uh, of course, another area is product standards to allow some of these new technologies uh, to be used. Uh, so in the, in the case of the two companies you mentioned, I'm glad to say both members of WCA, Blue Planet and Carbon Cure, I, I don't think they, they have a, a specific problem. But in some of the solutions, the solution uh, might work technically, but might not fall within the current concrete specifications. So I think this whole area of, of standards is one that is, uh, is going to get a lot more attention or be central to uh, decarbonization efforts more generally. Um, but perhaps we could uh, take some specific examples of, of how the uh, Smart Surfaces Coalition has, has helped. I think you've been working with some U.S. cities to, to look at how, how they could improve their living environment by, by using these principles. Yeah, a good example of that is Baltimore. So we worked with um, the leadership of Baltimore, including the major uh, NGOs, so for about 16 months to create a highly detailed digital equivalent of the city's entire surfaces, as Vivian said, to deal with both sunlight and rain, these two natural gifts that because of our surfaces are turned into problems and costs. And we're able to model a series of scenarios with the city. What happens if you add 10% trees? What if you take parking lots and make them reflective? What if you make roofs reflective and add solar? And from that, we were able to identify the 12 smart surface interventions that are most effective and cost effective. The study was released in middle of last year, and the city has adopted as a set of bills in legislation going through adoption in the city council to adopt most of these measures. Adoption of smart surface in Baltimore would uh, cool a downtown by 4.3 degrees. Um, it would have very large health, energy, water, and other benefits. Um, it would protect summer tourism, which is a big issue for uh, Baltimore. It would have a net present value of $13 billion. 
benefit cost ratio of about 10 to one. And these are technologies that are widely available, solar, reflective surfaces, uh, trees, uh, porous concrete, those types of things. So here's a city that's really struggling and has an opportunity to reinvent itself, to make itself cooler, healthier, reduce the cost burden on people, make the city more attractive for tourists. Um, and it's, an ex it's exciting to see the adoption of smart surfaces in the way it was intended, that is citywide for very broad benefits across the economic spectrum, particularly in low-income and minority neighborhoods. And uh, what is the status of the implementation there? The council has um, a set of six measures that it is in the process of adopting and that uh, will require the city to take a set of steps through its departments like the Department of Transportation and others to change how it surfaces at roads, things like adopting uh, more trees, more porous surfaces. And, and, and those include the set of measures that WCA and smart service are working on together, which is lower carbon concrete, more pervious concrete and more reflective concrete. I think that the um, the chance to work together with you on this particular topic is is, is really interesting for the uh, cement and concrete industry uh, because it is a chance for us to make a, a positive impact uh, rather than always be talking about uh, how, how we can uh, reduce the harm we're doing. So I think it, it's very good for the industry to get involved in things that can uh, can be uh, seen in such a positive light. So Vivian, maybe we could um, uh, come back to, uh, from your perspective, what, what are the major challenges that you see for the design community uh, relative to concrete? Okay, let me, let me stay with the positive for a minute uh, in terms of uh, the opportunities for the, the cement and concrete industry relative to the design community. Um, as, as many may have seen in the, in the media, there's a, a huge interest in the use of timber in construction. And uh, whether it's cross-laminated timber or mass timber, uh, there's obviously the, the benefit of growing your own materials. And the, the partnership with the concrete industry is, is critical. There, is, um, there are core issues, there are fireproofing issues. And so ultimately, I would argue that some of the real innovations for the cement and concrete industry is, is in the partnerships with other building materials. Um, in addition to that, there is an interest in trying to make things that are stronger with less concrete total mass. So in other words, a bubble deck floor slab uses a series of little micro vaults uh, to minimize the thickness of the slab and the amount of, of, of cement and concrete that's in the slab and actually makes it stronger. And those innovations are value-added innovations. In a sense, you wanna sell less material of greater quality. Right. You want to be able to strategically figure out a way to keep the, the profit um, solid while you're actually saving the earth, right? So I think there's a lot of very interesting, uh, innovative cross-industry, and there needs to be people in, in every one of your members' organizations looking at uh, innovation in the building industry and how uh, concrete is a partner instead of a trade-off. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we, we see now is, is a greater willingness on the part of uh, of architects, designers, uh, contractors, and developers uh, to work with the whole supply chain in, in order to minimize the, uh, the carbon footprint and, and other environmental impacts. I think this is something that is relatively new. I, I remember in the cement industry, we, we tried to do this some 10 or 15 years ago. At the time, there wasn't really an appetite to do it. 
the mentality was very much, uh, you know, produce standard products and, and we'll worry about the rest. And I think that's one of the big changes in the last few years that I, that I see in that industry. But, but coming, coming back to um, concrete and using concrete, uh, there, are, there are some areas, I think, in, in terms of uh, resiliency. It, you know, if we think about uh, the impact of climate change, I was talking to some colleagues in Australia this morning, and I, I remember talking to them a few months ago, and they were worried about the fires, and, and this morning they're worried about the floods. Um, so we're, they're, they're, they're getting a lot of examples of the kind of events that uh, happen more often. And uh, we've, you know, had uh, high winds and flooding in various places recently. Uh, so uh, do you see concrete playing a, a role, a bigger role in, in, in addressing uh, resiliency, climate resiliency? You want to pick that up, Greg? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do. The concrete is naturally relatively reflective. It has an albedo reflectivity of about 0.35, which is a lot higher than tarmac dark roads. So it starts with that advantage. It's also more rigid, so it's what's used in airport runways because it, it doesn't flex down, and as a result, it uses less fuel for airplanes to take off. Unlike tarmac, concrete can be made porous, and that porosity remains there. So some of the opportunities for concrete include how do you increase reflectivity without increasing glare? How do you bring down the cost of making concrete porous so it can hold water? and allow water to flow through and do groundwater recharge. So you don't have subsidence, which is a common problem in Asia. And then what we talked about, which is taking the carbon footprint of concrete, which is, as you say, about 8% of the world's CO2 uh, and, and actually make it a positive thing. How do you sequester carbon in concrete? One way to do that, Blue Planet shows, is by taking flue stack gas turning it into aggregate, which is, as you know better than I do, somewhere around 70% of concrete by volume. So the opportunity for concrete uh, industry to take a leading role in addressing uh, livability, protecting our citizens, uh, managing increased water, helping to reduce flooding, uh, and also then bringing down heat by reflecting more heat and light back into space as well as becoming sort of using carbon store and other tools to come down the carbon curve and to actually become a major place where, where carbon is stored permanently in our roads, in our buildings, in our infrastructure. There's no reason to believe that there's any loss in performance or strength. And so there isn't a, a but to that. There isn't a downside. It just is a huge opportunity to add value to a concrete uh, to provide higher quality products that deliver additional services for which the industry gets paid and to move from being a big problem for global warming to a big solution for global warming. So it's kind of uniquely positioned as an industry to be a real hero and to get paid for it as, uh, as, we, as we try to transition to a less unstable climate. So I think that's a lovely framing for, for the uh, cement and concrete industry. We have the chance to move from being uh, a, a problem to being a hero in, in addressing the problem. Maybe we could just turn uh, to a slightly more general topic, Vivian, um, and, and uh, you're on the uh, committee that's looking at how the US gets to uh, 2050. Is there anything there that you've been looking at that you think is particularly relevant to the cement and concrete industry? Well, there's, there are clearly a number of, of changes that have to occur in the United States if we're going to get close to carbon neutral by 2050. One of them is definitely going to be operational energy 
use and embodied energy. So um, the embodied energy in concrete is certainly a, a critical piece of that. There is gonna be an electrification process that's gonna, as we shift away from fossil fuels and move to renewable electric sources, buildings are gonna to need to be electrified. Obviously vehicles are gonna be electrified. So there's, a, there's gonna be a, some, some really sort of big leaps that could certainly um, impact the way in which cement and concrete are used today. Um, I'd, I'd like to bring a, a slightly a different issue, which is another partnership that I think that the cement and concrete industry need to, to embrace. And that is both the renewables and the landscape community as if they are actual partners. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at cities that are flooding, it, porous pavement will help a lot. It will not solve the problem. So what we need is subsurface storage. We're gonna need ways, and, and rooftop storage, water storage, we're gonna need ways in which we can hold hours of rain until the, the, the natural aquifer can absorb it, right? So we'll, we'll release it back into, into nature, but much more slowly. Every, every mile of road and every mile of, of sidewalk really should be some form of water storage system. You need a breathing surface and you need, you need a structured water um, capture and again, I, I think it's the, it's the people laying the sidewalks and the roads who need to be trained and capable of installing this. The same might be true for, for photovoltaic um, canopies over parking lots. They, you, know, if, if it's, if you don't wanna have two different trades coming in and trying to solve this problem. You wanna actually design the parking lot both to be a breathing porous water storage, but also a power generation, right? And so, Ultimately, the partnerships that, that the, the cement and concrete industries form are going to be key to a decarbonized future. Mm. Thank you for that, Vivian. I think that's uh, it's very interesting. It also ties into climate justice from a slightly different angle, which is um, thinking about how the, uh, the requirement for skills will change over time. I mean, you were talking about uh, perhaps somebody who's installing uh, photovoltaics would also be doing something on the drainage side. And I think more generally, we can see that the nature of jobs will change with uh, a more sustainable industry. And uh, so uh, climate justice uh, you know, has a lot of different angles. So Greg, you, you, you and I met at uh, COP last year, and obviously the, the key topic there was more between countries and, and, and you know, how you get just solutions, uh, recognizing that some countries have been industrialized for a long time and, and some are just industrializing. And then you also mentioned it in the uh, looking at the cities and the fact that the areas that tend to have the poorest uh, people are, are usually the ones that have the worst heat island effect or drainage problems. Um, and I think, it, you know, this is another aspect of climate justice is, is how do you uh, retrain people whose jobs are disappearing when there are, are going to be other jobs to do. So uh, this is an area that perhaps uh, is, is one that industry generally has to uh, become more involved with. Perhaps before we finish, Greg, we, we, we could also just talk about your initiative in India, because a lot of what we've been talking about here has been focused on North America, but uh, the coalition has also got some um, uh, connections with India. Do you want to just talk a little about that? I mean, because of its population and location and size of cities, the largest urban population in the world at risk from climate change is, is in India. And uh, with our partner, Terry, there, we are starting to work with some cities to help them move from dark and impervious to broad adoption of smart surfaces. Uh, I shared with you a paper that outlines for India why this is such a critical and essential strategy. 
India, in some senses, has already been a leader. They have perhaps the most sophisticated uh, heat management strategy presented at COP by any uh, country. And so it's a kind of a natural extension for them to adopt smart surfaces to bring down the heat of cities. They can bring it down by five to eight degrees Fahrenheit through adopting smart surfaces. As Vivian said, managing water better with pervious surfaces. Uh, planting trees, PV, as you say, all this is very job creative, which in that environment is a good thing to have. Brings down energy bills. I mean, one of the things about uh, smart surfaces in reducing your uh, ambient temperature is you're really bringing down your peak electricity consumption. And for utility, that peak consumption is very, very costly because you have to have generators that are peak generators, typically natural gas, maybe only operating a few hundred hours a year. So by dramatically reducing the peak through smart surfaces, you actually make utilities uh, more productive and, and more profitable while avoiding sort of the burden of addition air conditioners. If you think about an air conditioner, what does it do? It puts cool into a room and then spits about three to four times as much heat outside into the city. It, big jump in air conditioners can heat city by two degrees. They release greenhouse gases, which are used as coolant. They preheat the air in air conditioners stacked above it. So we're either going to go down private air conditioning pathway, which then accelerates global warming, or we're going to do citywide cooling. And that's what smart surfaces allow is citywide cooling. So a place like India must have smart surfaces if it's going to protect its population and remain economically vibrant and, uh, and, and protect the health of its people. Thank you, Greg. I think just looking at the time, we should probably wrap up. But before we do, I wondered if uh, either of you had any uh, recommended reading uh, for our listeners. Well, if you would share the website, um, there are a lot of resources on there, a lot of articles, a lot of studies, a lot of follow-up contacts. We're, we're looking to um, build more partnerships and extend, uh, you know, and so one of the key areas for us is if there are manufacturers out there who are interested in increasing the albedo of concrete partner, we're looking for more corporate partners that understand that they want to be part of the solution and want a not-for-profit global partner to help them get those investments recognized, accelerate adoption of smarter, more reflective surfaces. So we'd love to hear from you. And Vivian, do you have any uh, recommended reading that you'd like to close with? That's a really good question. And I actually do think that uh, because the Smart Surface Coalition is a coalition of, at this point, probably 40 major global players, and um, there's a contribution of both articles and visionary approaches and examples of cities, I think that probably is the best repository to go to. Um, I definitely, um, I think in, in the terms of the innovation that can occur in uh, materials, there are a number of other groups that are emerging, including the uh, International Living Futures Institute's DECLARE label, uh, looking at uh, the, the American Institute of Architects have uh, just launched a materials pledge. Uh, so there's, there are definitely the materials side of the, of the solution is now growing, at least in the United States, as a major area of innovation. So uh, Vivian Loftness, Greg Katz, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Lovely to see you, Ian. Great seeing you. Thank you so much for including us, Ian.